We've been on this journey through 1 Corinthians, and what we find in this New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul about uh, 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, what we find is a young uh, Christian community wrestling with this question. How do we live and work and, and rub shoulders with a culture that seems to run so counter uh, to what we have learned about the life and the way of Jesus? And uh, we're going to see that playing out in our text today. Uh, so let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you have a Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to pick up in verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And here um, you can see the, the, the quotes there. Um, Paul is referring to something, he's citing something that the, that the Corinthians had previously written to him. So he says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines what he, that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now we're going to pause there before we get to the heart of this uh, text and the struggles that they're dealing with, because we need to talk about this word Knowledge. The Corinthians and really the city and culture of Corinth prized knowledge, wisdom, learning above all other virtues. Some of the greatest celebrities of their day, people that were put on a pedestal, were those who seemed to have the most wisdom. And even in our day, we get this. We who love and celebrate and cherish knowledge. That's why we obsess over education and helping our kids get into the best schools and having every resource possible to help them thrive and to learn and, and, and to become knowledgeable people. Uh, one of my favorite stories about the importance of knowledge, there was a college student who was taking a class on ornithology. It's the study of birds. And this particular professor was uh, famous for, for having really hard exams. And so this student studies like crazy in the lead up to finals. He pulls an all-nighter. He walks into the lecture hall for the final. And there's no usual pencil and paper at every desk like there normally would be for the test. All there is on the walls of this lecture hall are pictures of 25 different kinds of birds. And uh, the final is you have to identify 25 species of birds from the different pictures. But here's the kicker. The pictures aren't, don't show the whole bird body. All they show are the bird's feet. So you have to identify 25 kinds of birds just from their feet. Well, this student walks in and he goes berserk. He says, this is not fair. This is crazy. Nobody in the world can pass this exam. I'm not taking this final. And the professor said, well, I'm the teacher. You have to take it. <clears throat> this is the final. And the student says, well, that's absurd. I'm not going to do it. And the prof says, fine, then I'm going to flunk you. And the student says, you go ahead and flunk me. I'm not taking it. And the professor says, all right, you just flunked. What's your name? And so the student rolls up his pants to his knees and he says, you tell me. Right? That went over better in here than it did in the 930 sanctuary. They're like, you can't do that. We love education, knowledge, learning. It's why we built a library, a beautiful library in the heart of this church, because we're Presbyterians, and Presbyterians love using our minds. We like it when the preacher parses Greek words and brings up all this ancient Near Eastern culture stuff and quotes from the Epic of Gilgamesh, and we're like, that's really cool. And all of this stuff can be helpful. In fact, I'm going to use some Greek today, but it should come with a warning label, knowledge puffs up. 
In fact, Paul uses this exact same Greek word later in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love poem, when he says, love does not boast, it is not proud. And the Greek word for proud, see, I'm using the Greek here. There you go. The Greek word is the same word that he uses when he says knowledge puffs up. He refers to a bellows being pumped up and about to blast out hot air. Paul says that's what knowledge can do, and sometimes it's what it does to me. Uh, This week I was hanging out with some of my best friends, and we were just having a guy's night, catching up, and having some conversation about life. I've known these guys for a long time, and uh, one of the guys was kind of venting about what he's been going through at work how there's another colleague who's kind of been saying some bad things about him and tarnishing his reputation in his particular line of work. And my friend is just really struggling over this. He's angry and he doesn't know what to do and he can't stop thinking about it. And, you know, here's a, um, here's a friend of mine who's just kind of struggling and just out of nowhere, we're hanging out. Like, this is guy's night. And here's what I, here's what I said to him. I said, you need, to, you need to pray the imprecatory Psalms over that guy. And my friend sort of stopped, like, what? Did you just say, impreca who? Right? I mean, who says that? It's guy's night. And I'm like, yeah, imprecatory psalms. I can sometimes be that bellows, just pumping out hot air. And Christians can be that way. Some of the Christians in Corinth have decided that they know all the big words and they have all the knowledge, all the theology they needed. And Paul says this knowledge has puffed them up with this sense of spiritual pride. They were looking down on other people, becoming spiritual know-it-alls. And you've probably met someone like this in your life. I led a Bible study in college and there was this one freshman And man, he knew his theology. He grew up Presbyterian. He knew his Bible. But it's like you couldn't get two sentences out of your mouth before he would jump on you and point out some error or some mistake in your theology or your thinking. Like he'd be like, no, 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 you're wrong. You're forgetting what Schleiermacher said about hermeneutics. And you're like, oh, of course. How could I have forgotten that? Right? It felt like we were playing Bible trivia and not letting the Bible transform us. And some of you know what that's like to live with or to be in community with, or to raise a person who thinks they have all the answers. Well, here's the problem with knowledge, with being a spiritual know-it-all, is the moment we think we have all of the answers, this little door opens and pride begins to make its way in. And Paul says, knowledge puffs up. It's a brilliant word picture to swell with pride. It It suggests a swelling of the heart and the mind. Paul says knowledge, it can lead to an inflated sense of self. And I was trying to think of maybe a a, a picture of this or a way to illustrate this for us uh, today. And and I just, I kind of came to this great theological classic, uh, Finding Nemo. Anyone remember Finding Nemo? I know I'm about 10 years late to the game here, but um, there was a certain blowfish in Finding Nemo. His name was Bloat. Kind of a cute little guy, but then every once in a while in the movie, he would just puff up and blow up. So I did some research on blowfish. This is what I do during the week, in in case you're wondering. I just kind of go down these trails, and I love knowledge. Did you know that sweet little bloat here is actually the most poisonous fish in the world? He has a neurotoxin a thousand times more poisonous than cyanide. And so when a blowfish senses that they're in danger... They fill themselves with air and they expand to four times their original size, becoming impossible or too large for an enemy fish to eat it. 
And then I got to thinking about this and just this image that Paul gives us of being puffed up. Who in the world wants to be around a blowfish? Right? They're hollow and toxic. You can't touch them. They're always hurting people. They're, right? There is nothing relationally endearing or invitational about a blowfish. There's nothing that draws you to them. And then I realized the church, like if we don't watch it, we can end up churning out blowfish. And over time, we can become these puffed up people in our knowledge and our just swelling with pride. Like we have all the answers for a broken, sorry world. Knowledge puffs up, Paul says, while love builds up. It comes under. It raises up. It, it serves. What you know is not as important as how you love. What you know is not as important as how you love. So back in our text, verse 4, um, Paul continues, and he kind of gets to the heart of the matter. Therefore, Paul's like, in light of what I just said about knowledge and love, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Again, he's quoting the enlightened Corinthians who seem to have all the answers here. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now just a little parenthetical note. Some New Testament scholars um, look at this verse, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, as the strongest Christological affirmation, like there's no clearer statement of the lordship, the unique lordship of Jesus Christ in all the New Testament. Verse seven, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as if it were really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. Verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged or enticed or tempted if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother or my sister stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother or sister stumble. So here's the situation. Corinth, like many of the other ancient cities in the Roman Empire, was filled with pagan temples where sacrifices would be made to, the, to all of these different deities like Apollo and, um, and Athena and Aphrodite. Now, whatever meat was left over from these sacrifices, right, this was mostly about meat here when the, you see the word food. This is mostly about meat, okay, Texans? This meat would end up being sold in the marketplace. That's where, that's where everybody went to get their food. So you go to HEB and basically any meat that's available has had some connection to the pagan temples where these sacrifices are taking place. You wanna eat meat? You're probably gonna eat something that was sacrificed to an idol. 
Well, these Jesus followers in Corinth are divided over whether it's okay to keep on eating this meat. Or what if the scenario is, and actually Paul plays this out a couple chapters later, what if a friend invites you over for dinner? And when the meal comes out, it's meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And you don't believe that's appropriate, but there are all these rules about etiquette. And, and, and if you don't eat that meal, it would be deeply dishonoring and even offensive to your host. So what do you do? When I was interviewing for the job here at Highland Park, um, I was way out of my league to be considered for this. And so I, I wanted to make a good impression with the search committee that was responsible for, for making the decision. Well, one of my um, big official interviews was a lunch that was hosted by one of the committee members at her house. And the meal that she had prepared for us, she'd worked really hard to make this amazing meal, and they brought it out as we're all sitting around this table, and it was chicken salad, like the kind of chicken salad that's just loaded with mayonnaise. Well, I don't know that I've shared this before in public, and it's a little bit, you know, vulnerable for me, but I have a clinical phobia of mayonnaise. <laughs> Going back to my childhood, there was a real traumatic experience with mayo. That's a different sermon for another time. <laughs> but ever since then, like, I can't even think about the stuff without almost gagging. Like, just telling you this story fills me with fear, okay? It is not allowed in our house. We, we do not talk about that condiment which shall not be named. So I'm interviewing for a job, and I'm really nervous, and there's this spread of like a giant plate of chicken salad in front of me, and the whole committee is there, and everybody is watching, and I don't know what to do. I mean, there's only so much you can flip under the table without, you know, somebody <laughs> noticing, right? Maybe I could say, I'm sorry, I'm fasting because I'm kind of spiritually mature, and I just wanted to... Um, but then if I actually try to eat it to honor the host, like if I eat the mayo death salad and my body decides it won't accept it, I mean, that's not going to really help with the final candidacy process either. So how that story ended, I'm not going to tell you. It's confidential between me and the committee, but I still hate mayo, and I am the pastor here. So, But these were the kinds of ethical challenges that the Corinthian Christians faced. Do I eat the meal or not? Even beyond that, just as in our culture, often when there were public gatherings, when you invited people to, to a public experience, usually there was food involved. And the host of these public gatherings, it was customary for them to pray over the meal, kind of like we do, but they would bless the meal um, to some pagan god, and they would just pick one of any, many of these gods that were available. Well, you had some Christians who wouldn't have anything to do with any of these public gatherings because they felt that it defiled them, it polluted them. Then you have some other Christians who knew better, right? They were enlightened, and they, they said, we can eat whatever we want, and it doesn't matter if somebody blessed it in the name of, you know, Apollo or Aphrodite, we know it's all meaningless. And they laughed at the other Christians who were staying away and saying, no, 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 we can't do that, it's sinful. And so Paul says that in this conflict, you basically have two camps, two kinds of people, the strong and the weak or the strong in conscience and the weak in conscience. Well, who are the strong and who are the weak? Because it may be the opposite of what we think. Here's what Paul says in verse seven. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience or their faith is weak, it is defiled. Which is interesting, 
Because when we today talk about a person with a weaker conscience, we tend to mean the person who doesn't feel uh, guilty about things, right? And so they go on doing bad stuff and hurting people and making terrible decisions because they have a weaker, less developed moral compass. That's what we tend to use that as meaning. But for Paul, it was the opposite. What he's saying is it's the, the weaker conscience is a conscience which is too weak to protect a person from feeling defiled, from always feeling guilty and condemned and polluted by something that can't actually pollute you. In other words, and Tim Keller has written about this, as far as Paul is concerned, your conscience is weak if it's not deeply oriented toward grace. If you're constantly feeling accused and condemned, the weak for Paul are the people who are more temperamentally tightly wound. And they, they, they have to know at all times what's right and what's wrong. And what that means, Keller writes, is they hate gray areas. They want to know what are the right things and the wrong things to do. What is the Christian thing and the non-Christian thing to do? And there is no in-between. There's no gray. They need to know exactly what is right or wrong, and they have no tolerance whatsoever for ambiguity. Well, then on the other hand, you have the strong. In fact, in his letter to the Romans, uh, Paul uh, says, we who are strong. So he actually identifies with the strong here. The strong are people with knowledge. Look again at verse 4. As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. The strong are those who had no superstitions anymore, like the weaker Christians who were all legalistic, right, wrong, moralistic about food and what to do in Corinth. The strong are the broad-minded ones. They're temperamentally flexible. They tend to be more well-informed theologically. They don't mind ambiguity or gray. They know that there is not always going to be an absolute right and an absolute wrong in every single circumstance in life. Now, in this text, even though calling someone a weaker person obviously is inherently kind of um, critical, like nobody wants to be called weak, but Paul saves his greatest critique for the strong. He says, you're not making room for the weak. You're looking down on them and you're, you know, you're too puffed up to accept them and to love them and to meet them where they really are. You're just labeling them as inflexible and intolerant and that's not love. So here's another way of looking at this. Of course, moralistic, legalistic people uh, can be so easily labeled as intolerant, inflexible. They're always trying to oversimplify things which makes them kind of easy targets. But is that not also true of broad-minded people as well? Aren't they equally intolerant of intolerant people? Don't they tend to be self-righteous about self-righteous people? They're judgmental of judgmental people. And so what's happening in the Corinthian church is both sides are really going after each other. Both sides are being intolerant of the other and it's causing division and strife and disunity in God's church. Over here in this camp, you've got the classic, old school, legalistic religious folk. Stay away from that food sacrifice to idols. Stay away from their parties. It's all bad. It's all tainted. But then in this camp, you have the enlightened ones who say, don't be so rigid. Chill out. Stop being so judgmental about everything. And they don't want to have anything to do with the legalists. 
They're being intolerant of people they think are intolerant. Both the weak and the strong are rejecting each other. Does that make a little bit of sense? So here in this passage, Paul reserves his greatest uh, critique and rebuke for the strong, those puffed up Christians who kind of laugh at and look down at and dismiss the ones that they think are naive or narrow-minded in their legalism. And Paul says, come on, guys. There has got to be a better way to steward the knowledge and the freedom that God has given you in Christ. So let me just speak for a moment, if I can, in this room this morning to the broad-minded and enlightened and theologically nuanced and living in the freedom of the gospel sisters and brothers who are here this morning. Can I speak to you for a moment? Somebody said maybe. Depends on what you're going to say. Appreciate that honesty, Gene. Would you be willing to lay down your right to be right, even if you are right? Would you willingly yield your personal freedom? Paul's going to pick up this theme of how we steward our freedom in a couple chapters. Would you be willing to lay down your personal freedom, true as it may be, to love and come alongside and make room for someone who maybe doesn't see the world the way you do, maybe not yet, and maybe never this side of heaven? And would you be willing to move toward them in humility? and to receive the person who sees whatever issue or moral predicament or ethical scenario or political disagreement or stumbling block in a way that you feel is just narrow or rigid or legalistic and would you love them just as they are? You don't have to accept their beliefs to accept them. Do you understand that? You don't have to agree with them to accept them, to receive them, to serve them, to embrace them, but you can do it without disdain and without judgment and without this kind of puffed up sense of superiority all the time. You can move toward them in love. And when you do that, what you might find is that you actually have something you need to learn from them. In the 18th century, there was a great uh, preacher, and um, writer named Jonathan Edwards, and he wrote a sermon on this very topic. And I wanna actually show you the, t- the title of this sermon. Some of you might appreciate this. The Spirit of Charity, the Opposite of a Censorious Spirit. Now that's a sermon title. I mean, I've got wimpy titles like Knowledge and Love. I'm the weaker brother here, but Edwards, he was a gifted preacher, and even that word censorious, you can kind of get where he's going, right? Censoring judging, silencing. What makes a person censorious or judgmental? What Jonathan Edwards in the 1740s said is it's not actually that you have strong convictions or theology or beliefs about what is right and wrong. As Jesus followers, you can and you should learn to think carefully and to discern rightly what is right, what is wrong, what is true. But what makes a person censorious or judgmental, Edward says, is that they actually find joy in it. They almost delight in finding something that is wrong and poking holes and exposing the house of cards in a way that another person thinks. They enjoy looking down on them. You find yourself saying or posting on social media, that guy is such a hopeless 
liberal and I know someday he's going to grow out of it and wake up. Or she is such a narrow-minded, ultra-conservative, stuck in her ways. I'm just so thankful that I don't think that way, right? I mean, do you almost hear the enjoyment in making these judgments, these indictments about other people? It is the heart of a person who even in subtle ways finds a little dose of joy when they read about somebody who's on the other side of an issue who got what was coming to them. Or when someone that you tend to think of is on the opposite side of the political aisle and something came up in their past or they have a fall from grace or they get sued or they get mired in scandal and you are like, well, they had it coming. They so deserve that. And then you forward the story to all your friends who believe the same things you do. Okay, that's, that's the puffed up heart. That's what knowledge can do. It can make us feel superior to those who don't see the world the way that we do. And it happens even in the church. These enlightened, strong in conscience Corinthians, they thought they had all the answers and they were puffed up and they were proud. But here's the thing, you can be right and still lose. You can be right and still get love wrong. I mean, let's call it, let's, let's call it what it is. The, the, the strong Christians in Corinth, they were right. Like idols are just empty pieces of wood. The grace of Jesus is all that matters. They have a right to do anything, everything. They have freedom in Jesus Christ. That's good theology. It's about a relationship with God. It's not this rigid set of rules. But is it possible that they could be right and yet wrong at the same time? If their freedom hurts another sister or brother. And it's the same for us when it comes to how we deal with money or social behaviors or alcohol or you name it. The question is not, what am I free to do? But how in doing this am I seeking the good of others and am I doing it in love? Paul will not sacrifice love on the altar of freedom. I mean, we live in a cultural moment that is so elevated the virtue of personal freedom above everything else, that the notion of submitting my own individual liberty out of love and good for someone else is seen as primitive and naive and frankly weak. But what if God is calling us to a different way, a better way, a way lived in the shadow of a Roman cross where love means we will give everything and surrender everything and lay down even our own freedom. Jesus made himself nothing. And on that cross, he laid down his own freedom out of love for you and me. So Lord, you're inviting us into just the everyday challenges. These are hard decisions. How do we love and interact with and engage with a world that seems to be operating on such a different plane? And yet, God, you've given us your word and these truths and these promises that you're with us. And I pray, Lord, that for us, even just as a church right now, even in this room or this family of churches, that you would be showing us what it means to come under, to humble ourselves, to be willing to lay down our personal freedom for the good of someone else. Lead us in that way of love, even today, even with our family and 
the people that we're going to rub shoulders with today. And I pray that as we do that, your Holy Spirit would be shaping and transforming and maturing us so that we would find joy, joy in that kind of humility and surrender. And we pray this in Jesus' name, even as we continue to worship you, Jesus. Amen.